And so John chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, look what it says here. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, and the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So this is pretty neat right here. This is pretty cool. I'm going to draw attention to this because I want you to pay attention. John here is writing from looking back, right? So John is one of the disciples who he witnessed this stuff, and he's writing his account of what he remembers happening. So right here in verse number 2 in chapter 11, Mary has not done this yet, but John is drawing attention. That's the same Mary, okay? She's going to do that in chapter 12, but he's drawing attention saying this is the Mary. So it's pretty cool to think about. He's writing that from an eyewitness account. So he writes, uh, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, of course, we think of a messenger. We think of maybe sending a text message. I don't know about you, but every time I send a text message and it goes greens, I want to go through the phone and choke somebody, amen? Uh, you Android people, you're the downfall of our society. I love you, but you are. Uh, you know, I really can't stand you send a message that goes green because it's going to take way longer to get there. This is way before you could send an email and they could respond. If you're like me, I love when somebody I'm texting has read receipts because it lets you know how long you've been left on red, amen? Um, because this is way before all of that, and you literally have had to send a messenger. You didn't even have pigeons back in the day, uh, back in the old, oh, back in the Bible days. You had a messenger, and so they would tell the messenger, and they would maybe give him a note or her a note. And they would take off running. Literally, they would take off running, Forrest Gump style, and they would go track down the individual who the message was for. And so, when Mary and Martha send word to Jesus, it is a day's journey. It is a day's journey for that messenger to get from point A to point B to where Jesus is. So by the time Jesus gets the message, it's already a day late, so to speak, right? It's already a day late. And whenever he does get the message, you know, it's very, very straight to the point, the one whom you love is ill. Lazarus is sick. He's not just kind of sick, he's very sick. He is ill. And so they were willing to pull him away from wherever he was because they had faith that he was a healer. They had faith that he was a friend. They had faith that this friend of theirs could do something. And so I love what Jesus says. Jesus says what? He says, we're not going to go right now. We're not going to go right now because this sickness is going to lead to glory. Because God's going to get through glory through this. Through this. Think about that phrase, through this. He's going to get glory through this. So let's pay attention to what else John begins to tell us. Verse number 5. Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? So I like this. Once again, you see the characteristic that the disciples are saying, bro, last time we were there, and just to clarify the millennials, when it's talking about stoning, it's not talking about getting high, it's talking about throwing rocks at people, right? Uh, I've got to clarify that for some of you millennials might be really confused. So really think about right here, he's saying, last time we were there, they tried to kill you. 
The last trip we went to Judea, the last time we were over by Bethany, we literally had to run for our lives. And you want to go back? And so they're throwing up caution like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to slow the road. We need to slow the road. We need to wait. Listen, Linda. Listen, listen, listen. We need to calm down, right? They're saying, you got to listen, Jesus. You're acting crazy. We don't need to go to Judea. We don't need to go to Bethany. And look what happens here. Jesus answered them, are there not 12 hours in the day? I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, what in the world does 12 hours got to do with anything? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if someone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What does that mean? Amen? Like, literally, they're looking at each other. Uh, how do we get from stones to a clock? Uh, and they're, like, looking around. And look what he says. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I will go awaken him. The disciples said to him, They're bright people, guys. Let me tell you, I can relate. They're bright. Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. You know what I mean? So they're even saying we shouldn't go because if he's sleeping, he's going to get up. But look what Jesus does. Jesus goes right to the point. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death and thought that he would meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, look what he says there, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Don't you love these guys? They go from saying, we should not go, they're going to stone us, to talking about a clock, to talking about light and darkness, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, he's sleeping, Lord, and then he's like, no, Lazarus is dead. You talk about really, really, really bringing it down to their level. He says, Lazarus is dead, and we need to go to him, and Thomas says, if we're all going to die, Leroy Jenkins, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, they are going, we are all going to die together, because they missed it. Don't you relate to this? Don't you relate to in seasons of your life, God's doing something and you have no idea what he's doing. You're just going like, I'm just going to go along with it. See what happens. And isn't it great, the kindness of Jesus with these men? The compassion Jesus has for his followers. The compassion Jesus has for us when we mess up, when we don't do things the right way. To know that his grace is new every morning, his mercies are new every morning, is what the text says, and to mean that every day God is patient with us because we're works in progress. It should comfort you even more to know that God specializes in broken, jacked up people because that's all he has. Guys, we're all broken, jacked up people. Let me promise you, if you walked in that door, what you're telling the whole entire world and all the community, I don't have it together. And you're in good company here because none of us do. Underneath our Sunday best is a Saturday night worse, amen? Because we're all a mess. We're all jacked up. We're all like these men. So pay attention to me. I want you to understand the timetable. It takes a day for the message to get to Jesus. Jesus delays two days, and then Jesus leaves. So one plus two plus one equals four. Uh, you know what I mean? That's common math, baby. Common core. Uh, you know, and it's since that four days. So this is why the, the Bible is very, very big on you understanding four days. John painstakingly goes off and off and off again saying, guess what? Four days. Four days. You're going to hear the phrase four days over and over again. If you're very familiar with church, You've probably heard somebody saying, but you're four days late. Amen. And he's still on time. Don't make me sing at church. I will. 
I will sing it. Because four days is very, very critical to the story. Look what happens here in John 11, verse 17. Once again, I know some of you thinking, can we quit reading and get to the good stuff? It's all the good stuff. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. How many days? It ain't three, my Lord. It's four, right? Four days. He's been in there four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had came to Mary, to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now, when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Guys, let me tell you something. Hey, do you ever read about people in the Bible and picture somebody you know in that place? Do you ever do that? Anybody else? Nobody else does that? I do that. I read Martha's name, and I picture my Aunt Phyllis. I don't know why. Pat probably knows what I'm talking about, but Aunt Phyllis is very, very serious. She's always busy doing stuff. Thank God she's an extremely godly woman because you read about Martha cooking the meal and Mary just lounging at the feet of Jesus. And Martha reminds me of my Aunt Phyllis. So every time I think of Martha storming out, I think of my Aunt Phyllis. Just going out because she's saying, I'm not going to wait for Jesus to get to me. I'm going to go to Jesus, right? I'm going to let him know what's going down. So she goes out to him. It's been four days. And do understand here, once again, I read last week's story, and I really highlight some big things because I want you to understand how the Jewish funeral worked. Usually whenever someone passed away in the Jewish culture, in the Middle East, whatever it was, guess what? They tried to get them in the ground as quick as possible. Because this is way before a bombing. This is way before, you know, you had, uh, you had a-, a cremation. This is way before any of those things. So literally, you had just a matter of hours before the decomposition process started. So you had to get them in the ground as quick as you could. I don't want to gross you out too much, but three hours after your death, your blood vessels are releasing so much of the air they have because the heart's no longer working that you go into what they call rigor mortis, right? You, you become stiff. Because literally their blood in your body is draining away and going to the lowest part of your body. It's going to be really gross, right? And so three hours in, your body's already stiff with rigor mortis. You're already, your body's already starting the decomposition process. And then on top of that, believe it or not, 72 hours into the death process, so roughly, you know, give or take three days there, by that time the bacteria in your bowels are already leaking out and leaking into your body, and your body begins to swell up with methane gas. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> so you ever see those deer on the side of the road that are boom? <laughs> Some of y'all learning stuff today. It's because guess what? They've been there so long, the very decomposition process has started, and their bowels are exiting now, and yeah, it's very gross. Some of y'all thinking, eh, because I want you to understand what's going on here. So that's why they got them in the tomb as quick as they could. Like literally you would die and the undertaker, not the wrestling dude, amen. The real undertaker would take you away and they would put you in the ground as fast as they could. Now, modern day times, not not too long ago, we would bury people six feet deep, right? Remember, this is different climates. They would place people in tombs. They would place them in like stone stone pieces of a mountainside. They would place them there. They wouldn't have a burial process like we would think of us standing there and looking down. They wouldn't do all of that. They were placed in a family tomb. The tomb was sealed. It was bada bing, bada boom, done, right? It happened very quickly. In the process, though, remember last week I talked about how there were professional mourners. Remember that? 
These people would show up with flutes, and you know they would show up with some jazz, not jazz music, I'm joking. Uh, they would show up with like a, a, all kinds of flutes, and they would cry, and they would say, he was a good man, uh, you know, she was the best, and they would pr- be professional mourners that were negative Nancys and Debbie Downers for their, for their job. That was their job, to make big commotions and cry, and you've all been there. You've all been, if you've never been there at a funeral where somebody was losing their stuff, then you, you, you were there whenever Marley and me came out in theaters, amen? Because it seemed like every time I went and seen a movie and it was sad, there was always that one person. It was always, I don't mean to harp on you women, but there was always that one woman. And I'm thinking, she's, a, that, she's, she's an ancestor. She's a professional mourner. She's came down the line. That's what she is. So look what happens. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up to the grave, or Jesus shows up to the town. He's two miles off. Martha runs out to go talk to Jesus. The mourners are there comforting everybody. He was so good. He was so loving if Jesus had been here. I mean, they are literally whining and moaning and complaining and doing everything they know to do. But look what Jesus, this exchange Martha and Jesus have. Look what happens here. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last days. So look what happens here. Martha is shook up. Martha is in a bit of shock, you could say. She comes out to meet Jesus, and I want you to pay attention to her words. Lord, if you had been here. That phrase is the same phrase Mary says. Just in a couple more passages, we'll get to it. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That almost same exact phrase follows, and it almost seems like Mary and Martha are on the same page. They've been talking about this. They've been talking about if Jesus had have been here, our brother would be alive. He would have still been alive. So whenever Jesus shows up, Martha's saying these things to him. And Jesus comforts her and says, you know, don't worry. Resurrection's coming. Resurrection's here. And what does Martha do? Martha beelines for Jewish orthodoxy. So Jewish belief, orthodoxy is a fancy way of saying what you believe, what you, orthopraxy is what you do with that belief, all right? Orthodoxy is what you believe, orthopraxy, you're learning, aren't you great to know theological terms? Uh, Orthopraxy is you carrying out that belief. So she runs to her belief in the Jewish religion that guess what? There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. The Sadducees, if you did not know this, the Sadducees religious community during Jesus' time, they were sad, you see, y'all see the meme here? Because they did not believe in a resurrection. So that's why they were sad. That's a joke. <laughs> they were sad, you see, because they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Because most of the religious community in the Jewish day, they believed, guess what, there was going to be a resurrection. They believed in it. So Martha here, it's really confusing for some people. They read the text and they think that she's believing what Jesus is telling her, but that's not what she's doing. That's not what she's doing. because why, And I know that's not what she's doing because Jesus pushes it further. He makes it personal, and I'll prove it to you. Because once again, he said there's going to be a resurrection. She says, Lord, I know there's going to be a resurrection. I believe that there's going to be a resurrection. So she's holding on to religion when Jesus says, no, I'm about to show you what my relationship does. I'm not going to show you what religion does. I'm going to show you what a relationship does with me. 
Jesus takes it and makes it, moves it from corporate to personal. And you watch the exchange, watch the exchange. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then look what Jesus says. And Jesus said to her, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. So he makes it personal. Jesus says, I will bring about resurrection and life. Somebody says. He doesn't say there is going to be a resurrection and life. No, he takes it and puts it on himself. Guys, think about the theological framework here. Think about the deity of Christ he is putting out there. I am resurrection. I am life. So he's taking those two big things, resurrection and life, and placing all the weight on him. And to us reading this today, we're thinking that's not that big a deal. But look at the phrase. Look at how he says it. He says, I am. He doesn't say, I will. He doesn't say, I might. He says, I am. Now, when we hear I am, it ought to make us go all the way back to Moses. Whenever you know, God reveals himself to Moses, he says, well, who should I tell him has sent me? And what does God say? Tell him, I am sent you. So whenever you see that word there, it's almost the same thing because what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is elevating himself from a rabbi and teacher to a friend to the Son of God. He's raising the worth. He's, he's anying up even more saying, no, Martha, you don't understand. There's not going to be just a resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. It's personal. So for her, she's looking in the last days, but she didn't realize the resurrection was on, her, was on his way. He was just two miles out of town. Because he says what? I am the resurrection and the life. Let's, talk, let's unpack that a little bit. Guys, resurrection, you know what that means? Because he is the resurrection, death cannot be in his presence. I want you to think about that. Death cannot be in God's presence. This is why God had to chase them out of the Garden of Eden. Why? Because death could not be in God's presence because death doesn't affect, doesn't, doesn't do what it's supposed to do when it's in God's presence. Because remember, time and time again, where Jesus shows up, death recedes. Death recedes. So as much as the story is framing, Lazarus has died. I want you to know, this is a heavyweight championship moment right now for Jesus. This is a, let's get ready to rumble. Why? Because you've got to understand, the whole package of John is about belief. Believe, believe, so that you may see the signs of God and recognize Jesus is who he says he is. And what John is doing in John chapter 11 is he is building a case for Christ. So the last cornerstone to the last cap of Jesus' ministry is John chapter 11. Because this is the biggest miracle he's ever going to do. Outside of the resurrection, right, his own resurrection, this is the largest, biggest public display of him claiming exactly who he is. And it's going to be a resurrection. It's going to be a resurrection. Remember last week I made a mistake. I don't know if some of you think, he doesn't ever make mistakes. I did. Uh, I made a mistake last week. I told you there were three resurrections according to the Gospels, and there's actually four. Because there is Jairus' daughter, who we talked about last week, and then there's a widow's son. Remember this? Jesus is, uh, shows up in town, and the widow is they're packing her son out to the funeral home. Literally, it says they're having a funeral procession. Jesus goes up and says, boy, get up. The boy sits up. I bet they still lost their deposit, amen? <laughs> because literally, you understand, whenever Jesus shows up, he brings resurrection power. 
He brings resurrection power. And not just resurrection power, but he decides when people die. God decides when people die. And you might be like, no, 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 my life is my choice. Do you not understand that even if, let's say, God forbid, somebody was to take their own life, their choices that they've done has accumulated because God placed them at that time in that part of history and all those things because I firmly believe God is the author of life and death. God is the author of it. And that's why it really grieves us when somebody does take their own life. Why? Because they're trying to wrestle that away from God. Well, let me tell you something. We are to be people who protect people from the womb to the tomb. Because God is the only one who has the authority to take life and to give it. God is the only one. God is the only one who has that authority. Because God is the author of life. Guys, you understand that, that life cannot exist without God. Let me tell you something. I'll be honest with you, church. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't. I don't have enough faith to believe the universe just, just started. I don't have enough faith in that. Kind of like I said in Christmas time, if you did not remember that, I said, you know, you either got to have faith that God's Son is a miraculous birth through the incarnation, right? You got to have faith that Jesus' birth was through a virgin. You might say, man, it's hard to believe. It's harder to believe the universe just came out of nothing. That's really hard to believe. Either way, you've got to believe a miracle. I don't know about you, but I'm believing this miracle. Because this one's true. So we need to understand now, he says, I am the life. He's not saying, I am a life. I am kind of a life. I am the life. Guys, life can only be found in Christ. It can't be found anywhere else. It can't be found in any other things. Let me tell you something. Things can bring you a lot of joy. Things can bring you a lot of happiness. But only true, everlasting life can be found in one person, and it's Jesus. And that's what he tells Martha. Look what, she, look what he goes on to say. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is the coming into the world. So she says, yeah, yeah, I believe it, I believe it. Look what goes on, verse number 28. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus has not yet come to the village, but was still a place where Martha had met him, two miles off, right? When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, those, those professional Debbie Downers, right, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, same phrase, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But look what happens here. Jesus doesn't do have the same conversation with Mary and Martha. He has a different conversation. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see Verse 35, if you never want to win a Bible trivia game, you know one Bible verse, it's John 11, chapter, John chapter 11, verse number 35, it's two words, right? Jesus wept. That's the two words. Jesus wept. Verse number 36, so the Jews said, said see how he loved him, but some of them said, could he, could he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? If you want to know one of the most highly, highly debated pieces of scripture, we just read through it. 
Everybody wants to know why John chapter 3, John chapter 11, verse number 35 is in there. Why does John, in the middle of his gospel account, take time to pin those two words, Jesus wept? And for a long time, I've heard people debate about it. I've heard people, people have even asked me about it. Like, what do you think? Some people, they believe that Jesus was really moved because he knew what he was calling Lazarus back from. They believe that, you know, he was calling Lazarus back from eternity, in a sense where Lazarus was already away from pain and sickness and everything else, that maybe he was pulling Lazarus back so Jesus was sad because he was pulling, pulling uh, Lazarus back from eternity. Some people believe that. Some people believe that he was moved in his spirit because he saw all of the other people crying, and he was a crier too, so Jesus is like, if you're crying, I'm crying, we're all crying. They kind of believe that maybe. People have all different types of scenarios. But I think what really puts it in context is not verse 35, but verse number 33. Verse 33, I think, sets the tone for the rest of the story. Because look what he says there. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who were with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved, greatly troubled. Now, those are not words we use very often. Like somebody says, how are you today? I'm deeply moved and greatly troubled. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's not, a, uh, that's not a comment you leave on Facebook. I am deeply moved and troubled. You don't, do, you don't talk like that. We don't use language like that anymore. We don't. And if you just ask me, one of our downfalls of our society is our vocabulary has become very, very limited. Like you read some old English, you're like, man, they knew their stuff. They would say stuff, you'd be like, wow. We can't. Now somebody, somebody does a meme, we're like, wow. <laughs> Think about how much we've fallen because words have really lost their meaning to us. But not to this, these people. Not to John, not to him writing this in that day and age. These words meant something to him. Some of you, you might believe that Jesus was sad because his friend died. So he was sad for three minutes because he knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew why he was there. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen because he's Jesus. So I don't think he was sad because his, friend was, dead. his friend, friend was dead. I don't think he was sad because of the other people weeping. I think what you see here, according to verse 33, he's deeply moved and he's greatly troubled because I think he really, really sees that his enemy has beat him to the first punch. You might say, what do you mean, Pastor, by the enemies beat him with the first punch? Because the Bible very explicitly talks about one of the last enemies to be destroyed. In the book of Revelation, it talks about this. One of the last enemies to be destroyed is death itself. Because you need to remember, pre-Genesis 3, there is no death. Think about that for a minute. There is no death in that garden before the fall. There's no death. No destruction. Nothing that causes us to stop and mourn. Nothing like that. There's just life and life to the abundance. And yet when the fall happens, sin enters in, and what always follows sin? Death always follows sin. You know how I know you're a sinner? You're going to die. I know you might be thinking, oh my gosh, I got really morbid really quick. 
I said that to you because I want you to understand, you are going to die. Guys, it's one out of one chance you're going to die, 100%. Odds tell us you're going to die. Because no matter what you do, guess what? Death comes for us all. It comes for all of us. And so what you see here is Jesus saying he's deeply moved and he's greatly troubled. Another way of translating that, greatly troubled, is he's angry. Believe it or not, but you think about that. He is angry. He's angry, why? Because he's angry because he knows what sin has done even in his own friend group. Even with the people he's close to. Even in the people who they call him friend, he loves them back, right? Jesus spends time with these people, and yet death still came for them. They still suffered. No matter, you know, Jesus was there, because remember, you gotta remember, Jesus is confined to one place because he's in the flesh, right? He has a body. So he can't be everywhere at once. He has to be in one location at one time. So he's angry. Why? Because death has taken even his friend. Because that's the downfall of sin. If you was to ask me, death has really lost its touch on a lot of us because we're just so used to it. We're so used to it in some ways. I remember being a boy, and uh, I'm not, once again, I'm not trying to get too morbid with you, but I remember the first time I saw someone die was right in front of me. I remember being a little boy when it happened. And I've seen a lot of people die. I hate to say it, but it comes with my job. It does. It comes with my job. I've held a lot of hands of dying people in my life. Some of you that work in the medical field, you're right there with them. You've seen a lot of people step over into eternity. And let me tell you something. As somebody who I've seen a lot of people pass to eternity, you never get okay with it. Like you ne- It never, never stops hitting you because you know as soon as it happens, you can feel in your gut, this is wrong. No matter if they're a baby, no matter if it's an old man, no matter who it is, guess what? It guts you because you know this is wrong. It should not be this way. And you get angry because you're thinking, man, I hate death. And so I think that's what you see here with Jesus. Is he's saying, man, I hate this stuff. And I think that's why he's even weeping, because he knows, like, this is what the fall cost. He's seeing it. And he's moved with compassion because his friends are seeing it. Because he was a man, like Isaiah says, he was a man greatly troubled. He was a man of sorrows. Well acquainted with our grief, is what the Bible says. You know what that means? That means, guess what? That Jesus struggled with things like we struggle with things. Those feelings you have. Those sadness, anger, bitterness, Jesus felt all of that and didn't sin when he did it. Because that's what's going on here. That's what's being played out before us. There's a poem I'd like to read to you, and I don't see anything in a poem. Oh, goodness. But I want you to listen to this poem. It's by a guy named Glenn uh, Scriviner. I'm going to really mispronounce his last name. It says, if you had been here. Pay attention to these words. So beautiful said The title of the poem is, If You Had Been Here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died, if you tried. Were you otherwise occupied, hands tied, or did you hide, maybe biding your time for what? A deeper challenge, a grander entrance, a brighter glory, a better story. The nick of time is a good story, that would do. Eleventh hour, you'd come through. Midnight, you were due, now it's half past two. Where were you? If you had been here, he would not have died. You were meant to ride in on a white horse, enter the fray, and the dragon slay, save the day. Did you hear us pray? 
Did you want it this way? If you had been here to stop him dying, why are you crying? You're meant to be a death defying. Your sight, you're, now you're sighing at the tomb, decrying moral, mortal ruin. Why is God's name, why in God's name are you queening for the same? Your commander in chief, we demand relief, but you land beneath all sorrows and grief. Now it's you on your knees, empty-handed, bequeathing us none of our pleas. If this is what you chose to bring only tears, we've got plenty of those. Why are you here? You say to draw near, then you sink like a stone past the brink of the chasm we desperately fear. In darkness enfolded our terrors you shouldered while pierced by the nails and the spear. You have been here. You stoop far below all depths that we know, engulfed in our weeping and woe. Submerged in the grave, then rises, then risen to save unending assumptions we've made. If you had been here. The way that we prayed, we'd only succeed in sorrow delayed. We'd only evade the reaper for now, but soon we would bow. Soon we'd, pro- we'd plow us in the ground with, one, with no one to plead. Yet, through you, death's a, gar- death's a gardener, and we are the seed. And this is the path resurrection decreed. If you will be here, drawing near, then that will do. For now to know you in your grace, we face what is true. As in Adam the world dies, so in Christ all will rise. When you appear, and my brother too, when you, when you wipe away tears, when darkness clears, when morning has cheered, and joy swallows fear, through all of your years, he's all we cope This is our sure hope. You will be here. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. Because Jesus was moved in a lot of ways. He was moved to anger. He was moved to tears. But aren't you thankful he was moved to action? He was moved to anger. He was moved to tears. And he was moved to action. I love that one line of the poem. I don't know if you caught it. As in Adam, the world dies, so in Christ, all will rise. How true that is. Because look what happens in the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Verse number 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, there's that same phrase, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, "Look, I love how John says it, the sister of the dead man. He's been dead four days. Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. He's been dead four days. Now remember, like I said, decomposition begins happening full-blown effect after 72 hours. 72 hours, you're in full-blown decomposition effect. The Jewish community, when they put somebody in the grave, they wrap them. Now, I don't want you to think like somebody held toilet paper and they did this. Don't you think they weren't, they weren't wrapping them like mummies or Egyptians. They would wrap them in linen cloths. And what they would do to combat the odor, they would take spices. This is why Old Spice is called Old Spice. Just kidding. I don't know if that's true. It sounded good, amen, to, to cover the dead. <laughs> I don't know. But they would take Old, they would take, listen to me, old Spice. They would take spices and they would layer the sheets of cloth. This is true. This is what they did. And they would wrap the dead with layers of spices. 
so that when the body began to decompose, guess what? Instead of you smelling, you know, methane and all those other terrible gases you might smell, and wild animals would come, and they would eat the bodies. That's why they did this. They would put all these spices on them to combat the smell of the decomposition. This is why, if you know much about church history, if you know much about the resurrection, this is why Mary and the other women are on their way to the tomb. Remember that? They had spices with them. Remember that? They were going to cover up Jesus' dead body smell. Remember that? This is why. Because, once again, they could not, get, they could not erase the stench of death, but they could cover it up. Ooh, it's another sermon, amen. Another sermon in there. So this is why Martha says... Jesus, he stinks by now. I love how the KJV puts it, he stinketh. Amen? If you don't know about stinketh, it's when you open that diaper, and it's a number two, it stinketh, amen? And it's in every crevice of the little body. It stinketh, amen? I mean, you got to get it all out. So it stinketh is what it says. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I love that. He doesn't say, did I not tell you if you believed you would see your brother? Did y'all notice? He doesn't say, if you believe, you will see a sign. No, no, no. He says what? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. The glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around. Jesus is praying openly because of the people around him. And when that they may believe that you have sent me. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who has died came out. I love that. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen straps. His face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. So Jesus shows up. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the Bible literally says, y'all, y'all read just like I did. It says, Lazarus comes out. That's what it says. You read it? It says he was bound up, walking like this. I mean, the bro can't see nothing. His face is still covered. He's still wrapped up. He comes to the entrance of the tomb, and Jesus says, go and wrap the man. Go and wrap the man. And you might be like, Pastor Nick, why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Because I want you to understand something. This is groundbreaking. Groundbreaking for all those there. Why? Because it had been debated, was Jesus who he said he was? Because they had heard about the widow's son. That happened pretty quick. Remember, funerals happened very quickly. So the widow's son... She was raised, I mean, he was raised very quickly. Jairus' daughter, we read it the other day, last week, remember that? She was resurrected moments after she had died. Y'all remember this? But John here painstakingly goes through the account because he wants you to understand something. This isn't a one-day dead. This isn't a two-day dead. This isn't even a three-day dead. This is four days the bro's been dead. He's been dead in the tomb for four days. Four days. And there is some belief that the Jews believed a soul could linger for three days around the corpse. So by Jesus showing up four days late, guess what? All hope is gone. 
All hope is gone, and they even know he stinks. His very body is wasting away. But isn't it good to know that Jesus doesn't care about decomposition tables? Isn't it good to know that Jesus doesn't care about the laws of physics? He doesn't care about the laws of human anatomy? He doesn't care about anything. Why? Because he determines what's real. Isn't it good to know that when Jesus shows up, things even shift? To such a decree, why? Because now nobody could ever doubt that Jesus had power over the, the, over the grave and death itself in this moment. Because he calls Lazarus out of the grave. I love how one theologian put it, thank God he said Lazarus or the whole tomb would have got up. Everybody would have came walking out. He had to call him by name or else everybody in the whole graveyard would have walked out. And when he walked out, guess what? He was still in his grave clothes. All church. If I got a word for you today. He came walking out and Jesus said, somebody go up there and help the man. He needs help getting out of his grave clothes. If you was asking me what we do every Sunday, church, we gather here because we all need help getting out of our grave clothes. Because some of y'all, y'all still, you still wrapped up. You've been resurrected, but you're still tangled up in that same stuff that was killing you the entire time. And you keep going back to it. Oh, I'll just keep wrapping myself up with these things. It'll make me feel good. It'll make me feel warm. It'll make me feel cozy. What I'm here to tell you today, the body of this believers, the body of the church, our job is to help each other unwrap each other with the fruits of the Spirit. Our job is to come in there and aid each other and say, man, that thing is killing you. Man, that stuff is killing you. You don't need to go back to it. And when somebody tries to go back to the grave, we grab them and say, no, you've been called to new life in Christ. Our job is to, to cut off those grave clothes of each other. Because sadly, guys, when you're dead, when your face is covered, you can't even see the stuff you're messing with. So let me tell you, some of you, you've been messing with the wrong stuff, doing the wrong thing over and over again. I'm here to tell you today, that stuff is killing you. It's sucking the very life out of you. And I'm here to tell you today, fold them grave clothes up and leave them. Why? Because you're not dead. What business does a person who's alive deal with people who are dead? Because those things are leading to death. Guys, let me tell you, a drink's never enough. You always got to have more to make yourself feel even worse. You got to have more. You got to have more. A high's never enough you got to keep chasing it until you get a better high, and then eventually you overdose. You keep on chasing that grave, and eventually it's going to catch up with you. And let me tell you here today, your bed being warmed by another is never going to make you feel good. You might think, well, if I can just get with that person, if I can just get that woman, if I can just get that man, you begin to think, in your head, if I had that person, they would complete me, I would feel good. Let me tell you, there is no life outside of Christ. Drugs won't do it. Alcohol won't do it. None of those things will do it. The only thing will do it is resurrection power. And the only person who has resurrection power is Jesus. He's the only one. So we've got to quit putting back on our grave clothes. We look so silly. It's like you're picking up your poopy diaper to put it back on. Thinking I'm clean. I look good. You don't. You still got the stench of death on you. And I'm telling you, the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses, but thanks be to God who made us alive. Who made us alive. Because He's the only one 
who can bring resurrection power. He's the only one who can do something for us. And that's my point there. We all need the church to help unbind us when we are tangled up in sin. I need you to unbind me. I need you to say, man, you shouldn't be doing that. Because the enemy can get you to do something, he would get you to be alone. He would get you to be alone. After this miracle, the Bible very explicitly says in John chapter 11, verse number 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This was the final nail in the coffin for Jesus, so to speak. This was the one event that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin could not overlook. Because when he raised Lazarus, guys, he did something that nobody else had even heard about doing. He resurrected somebody who has been dead four days. You might be like, there's other resurrections in the Bible? Yeah, Elijah raised people from the dead. But what Jesus did, he took it on another level. Because he really does have power over life and death. He took it to another level. And the Bible tells us the reason why the Pharisees wanted him killed was because they said, guess what? If this man continues doing this stuff, when people begin to follow him, we will lose our nation and our temple. That's what the Bible says they said. We will lose our things we hold dear. Let me be honest with you. Some of you believe that following Jesus costs you nothing. I'm here to tell you today, it costs you everything. Let me tell you this very plainly. Salvation costs you nothing. Sanctification costs you everything. Jesus gives you salvation as a free gift of God. By grace, through faith, are you saved. But you choosing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it will cost you everything. Cost you everything. And you might be like, well, I don't want to give him everything. Then what you're saying is, I want to go back to the tomb. I want to go back to that stuff that never filled me up. I want to go back to feeling like I was death. And I'm telling you, that's not the way it works. Because when Christ resurrects somebody. When Christ calls somebody out from the dead, he keeps them alive. They don't go back to it. You might say, what if they do go back to it? And they were just a dead person walking. They weren't made alive. They were just a dead person walking. To give you a very good graphic image here, Peter says it like this. If they return to the sinful things they were doing, they're like a dog that returns to its vomit. Isn't that very graphic? Because I want you to understand, why do we keep going back to sin when sin has never brought us life? Why do I do that? Why, when I bite people and devour people with my words, I think it makes me feel good, when every time I feel worse? You know what I mean in arguing with your spouse? You think, I'm going to really show them, and as soon as you say it, you feel terrible. Because sin always does that. Sin always promises relief and always ends you with more burden. Always leads to more burden. Christ always promises, guess what? You will have a burden, but the burden will be light. And I will give you relief. Isn't that so true? It's the very opposite of what sin promises you. Because he has life. Because the question is, ladies and gentlemen, as I begin to close this last little bit here, at the very, very end, will you have belief or will you have blame? He'll put it on the screen for us. Will you have belief or will you have blame? Believe or blame, that's the two options in front of you. You either believe God is good and you believe that 
He loves you and He is for you. He's not against you. And you really believe His way is the best way. Or you blame Him for everything in your life. You blame Him for everything and say, it's all God's fault. God did this. God did that. And God took. God took. No, the Bible says God doesn't take things. It says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life. I have come that they may have life. You might say, what if I have lost things? Guys, we live in a broken world. We've all lost things. Sin breaks everything. I'm losing my hair thanks to sin, amen? Daggum sin. Y'all best believe I can have it. I'm a fro, baby. It's going to be nice. Because sin does break and destroy everything. You might be like, man, why do bad things happen to us? It's because we live in a broken world. But you know what I believe? I believe that God, even in the midst of brokenness, is still good. I believe even in the midst of worse, the life worst, the worst life circumstances, I believe in the goodness of Jesus. Because he's always been faithful. He's always been faithful. And the last big thing, this last little bit here, anything that brings me to Jesus in a good way is for his glory. Anything. Because if you were to be honest with yourself, it's not when you're having the best day of your life that you give God the most glory. It's not. It's when God causes life to come out of death that God gets the most glory. It's when your situation is dead. You've got nothing. You're like, I have no hope. I've got nothing. Guys, it's in those moments we pray the most, we worship the loudest, and we are closer to God than we've ever been. It's in those moments that God can bring resurrection power. Because you know what happens during those moments when you've lost all hope? You know that the only person who can do something is Almighty God. And you know what does happen when you give God the glory for the great things He has done? Everybody else sees it and they marvel. Look what God did. Look what God did. In John chapter 12, it says that some people traveled through Bethany because they wanted to catch a glimpse of the man who was raised from the dead. They wanted to catch a glimpse of Lazarus. Oh, man. I want to catch a glimpse of him. Because the sad part of the story, and I'm going to talk about this a lot next week, the widow's son, guess what? She would die again. Uh, he would die again. Jairus' daughter, guess what? She would die again. Lazarus, our boy Lazarus, who we just talked about all day today, guess what? At the end of the story, you know where he ends up? Back in the same tomb he was called out of. But the one we're going to talk about next week, guess what? He don't go back. He doesn't go back. That's why the Bible says he's the firstborn of the dead. Because he never goes back. And you know what the good news is? There will be a day when me and you, guess what, they put us down on the ground. But when Jesus calls us out of that tomb, guess what? We ain't never going back. We ain't never going back.